Welcome to the Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Ryan C. Warner with us today. Dr. Warner is a licensed clinical psychologist and the founder, CEO of RC Warner Consulting. As a consultant, he assists teams to develop cultures of inclusion, leadership development, diversity training, and wellness enhancement. His website can be found at rcwarnerconsulting.com. And today we'll be discussing the impact of microaggressions on the therapeutic relationship, clinical effectiveness, and strategies for preventing discrimination at work. Ryan, thank you so much for being with us here today and welcome to the program. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Sam. Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I want to jump right into it. We've got maybe about 25, 30 minutes, and I want to make the most of it today. You know, as, as I listened to and had the, the opportunity to, to look back at your slides from a webinar that you gave for the National Register not too long ago around this very topic of microaggressions and unconscious biases, it made me think about my own childhood. As a white person, I, I grew up in highly segregated suburbs in Pennsylvania, um, shout out to Pittsburgh, Mount Lebanon territory. And then I moved to a very white part of Colorado, a suburb of Denver. And somehow I, I sort of took away this very simplistic idea, you know, that the racism looks a certain way, that, that it has a, a physical violence traditionally against black bodies, but over time and in training, but, but also I recognize that I've got more work to do, but over time I recognized that this was pretty narrow. It was insufficient and in some ways contributed to that injustice. And I've been really excited to speak with you here today so that we can all expand our understanding. And recently, because of your webinar, I wanted to maybe expand on some of these topics and highlight them a little bit further around microaggressions and unconscious biases. There's so much to cover here. So I wonder if we can start with the basics. Could you share a little bit about what microaggressions are with our listeners today? Yes, so I would define microaggressions as subtle covert forms of discrimination directed towards marginalized populations. So ultimately, when we think about microaggressions, the first thing that may come to mind are racial microaggressions. However, mm -hmm. it's important to know that microaggressions could be related to other facets of identity and in culture as well. There are gender microaggressions, uh, microaggressions related to religious background, you know, sexual orientation, et cetera. However, microaggressions was originally coined in, a, I believe around like 1960, um, by a black psychiatrist by the name of Chester Pierce. Have you heard of Chester mm. Pierce before? I have not. No, tell me about it. Yeah, so he actually coined this phrase around yeah, 1960, and ultimately, he initially defined microaggressions as black-white racial interactions. They're mm. characterized by white put-downs mm -hmm. and done in an automatic, pre-conscious fashion. Mm -hmm. However, since that time, since that an initial definition, it's developed, you know, to other areas of diversity and, and culture as well. 
Uh, so I just want to put that out there that, yes, there are racial microaggressions, but there's also other types of microaggressions as well that can be impactful for certain populations. Yeah. And and so I really appreciate you highlighting that piece and, and some of the origination of where these terms come from around microaggressions. I'm wondering, just so that I get a better understanding of, about it, what these tend to focus on or what they tend to sound like, just so that we're aware of what's micro about it or what does that mean to be aggressive? Mm -hmm. So oftentimes we may think about initially like verbal microaggressions, right? You say something that is covert, you know, under the surface, subtle, you know, microaggressions that I've experienced over and over and over again is, oh, well, you don't look like you have your PhD or uh -huh. people coming up to me and assuming that because I'm 6'4 and I'm a black male, with the athletic built that mm -hmm. I happen, I have to be on an athletic team or a sports team or a mm -hmm. basketball player, right? Those are some examples of verbal microaggressions, but there's also environmental microaggressions. So for instance, if you go into the office of your therapist and maybe you identify with, with a marginalized group mm -hmm. and you look on the wall and you see nobody who looks like you, or maybe you see a Confederate flag, a picture of a Confederate mm -hmm. flag in the office, right? You may not feel that you're you're wanted, um, or um, your your views are going to be heard, you know, in that mm -hmm. in that setting, right? So it could be verbal, it can be environmental, it could be, uh, you know, through policy, uh, etc. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out there as well that it doesn't always have to be uh, verbally conveyed. I, I think that's a really important point that you're highlighting that the spaces around us what's on our walls, what's in our offices can all convey some of these messages and potentially microaggressions that they're, they all are signaling something to those that walk in our offices. And, and in fact, Ryan, as you're talking, it, it even makes me think about the consequences of so many of those things on training too, and trainees that come through our graduate programs and, and what kinds of messages they're receiving from faculty and professors and those that are in those offices too. Yeah, the training, but also just look at the websites. I know when I was applying to PhD programs, uh, maybe about, how long has it been? Maybe six years or seven years ago? <laughs> sure. Uh, when I was applying, I was looking at these, these top tier universities, right? And they say mm -hmm. that we really value diversity. We, we want all mm -hmm. voices to be heard. But then I look at the images on the websites and there was nobody who looked like me. <laughs> wow. And so, wow. you know, that can also, you know, contribute to some, some detrimental impacts, especially for individuals who, you know, do not feel that their voice, you know, sometimes is heard, you know, by certain mm -hmm. groups, right? So what we put on our websites, you know, the curriculum that we teach, you know, in our programs, uh, what we have in our walls, in our offices uh, as clinicians, there's a lot of different things that we should try to be more aware of, you know, so we can mm -hmm. create more inclusive environments for all people. Ryan, as you talk about even your own personal impact of, of receiving these remarks, microaggressions, I'm also thinking about in general, for those that we serve as clinicians, you know, when we walk into the room and we're working with, with, with all sorts of folks, you know, whether they have marginalized identities or minoritized identities or not, I'm curious what we know about the consequences of moving about life, receiving these kinds of remarks 
receiving microaggressions? What does this do and how does this impact those we serve and the places we work? It's a great question. So I can speak on the personal <laughs> aspect mm -hmm. of it and also, you know, what literature and research indicates mm -hmm. as well. So personally, you know, just a few years ago, when I was going through various rotations within my doctoral program, I used to experience microaggressions on a frequent basis from okay. my supervisors, wow. okay? And one specific example, I remember one of my white female supervisors asked me, or she said to me one day, she said, Ryan, I would never guess that you, you would be in this doctoral program. And I looked at mm -hmm. her and I asked her, I, and I asked her, I was like, what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and she indicated, oh, well, there's not a lot of people who look like you in the program. So I would never thought that you'd be a PhD student. Wow. And when she told me that, you know, I, at first I didn't know how to respond. Uh, mm -hmm. But then when I experienced microaggressions over and over and over again, uh, especially in my previous academic experiences, when I would go to these top tier universities and I would sit in the classroom and I would look around mm -hmm. and I would see no other black males. Mm -hmm. And people would always come up to me and, and ask if I'm on the sports team or, mm -hmm. you know, be surprised that I would tell, him that, tell them that I'm actually here on an academic scholarship and not an athletic scholarship. Right. When I received constant <laughs> uh, facial expressions of surprise, you know, right. I started to feel that maybe I shouldn't be here, you know, mm -hmm. or am I, am I smart enough to be in this setting, right? Am I smart enough to continue, you know, um, to be in these environments that, you know, don't feel that, that I'm, I'm, I'm wanted, right? And, mm -hmm. and ultimately that impacted my well-being. you know, I, I, it impacted my motivation. Um, it, it led to me questioning my abilities, right? And then that also motivated me, though, to learn more about how I can support others who look like me. So I started to sure. do some, some research. You know, I did some research studies and started to look, in, look at the data and say, what, is the what does research show about the impact of microaggressions on marginalized groups? And what literature tells us is that when individuals experience microaggressions on an on a ongoing, like over and over again, then, yeah. then ultimately that impacts their, their well-being, right? That leads mm -hmm. to higher rates of depression, higher rates mm -hmm. of suicide, mm -hmm. um, and, and leads to them uh, having difficulty with retention in their workplaces, as well yeah. as in higher education uh, institutions as well. So with that, there's data that shows that, yes, this has an impact, but sometimes it's so subtle and it's subjective, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's hard to identify at times as well. And there are evidence-based, you know, empirically driven measures out there to, to be able to measure that, et cetera. But from our day-to-day, -day, just in our workplaces and in, in the therapeutic settings, it's hard to sometimes identify. And, and I think that's what makes it really tricky. Right. And, I, you know, up until now, even though I know we've brought up the phrase of like unconscious biases, we haven't talked necessarily specifically around what that is. And I'm wondering how unconscious biases shape or, or change our clinical practices. How does that impact what we do? Yeah, so it's important to note that as human beings, we all have bias. And having bias doesn't make you a bad person. Right. No one wants to be racist or sexist or any, or discriminate uh, discriminate on, on anyone's backgrounds. Right. Especially as helping professionals, we all want to support you know everybody. Right. No matter what um, their backgrounds are and no matter how they identify. 
But I think that oftentimes, you know, when we're not aware of that bias that we may hold or the preferences that we may lean towards, then that, that can impact our patients and our clients that we work with. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's actually a study that came out, I believe, in 2017, and it interviewed about 120 individuals who identified as Asian American. And I believe 70% of uh, those participants who identified as, as clients in a therapeutic setting, 70% indicated they experienced a microaggression, whether wow. that be a racial microaggression or gender microaggression, within the therapeutic setting, within the past month of when the survey was administered. So that's huge, right? 70%, okay, uh, of, of these Asian American uh, clients and patients indicate experiencing, you know, that, that event from their therapists, okay? Mm -hmm. So reading that study, I, I started to look at how do I, as a, as a clinician, you know, create an inclusive environment for my patients, right? Because we see patients from all different backgrounds. And I want to ensure that they feel respected, that they feel that they can come to me and share what's on their mind, you know, in a non-judgmental way. And I don't want to inadvertently harm, you know, do harm to my patients, right? Um, so I started to reflect on the biases that I may have, whether that be biases uh, related to uh, individuals of different sexual orientations or genders, et cetera. And that was kind of hard for me to reflect on that, <laughs> you know? Um, that was hard for you. There's different... Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of hard because, you know, at, at, at first I, I, I asked myself, well, am I a bad person for having, you know, mm -hmm. uh, this, this judgment about this particular group, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, when I was able to be non-judgmental to myself and realize that it's okay to have bias, but it's not okay not to do anything about it, that's what pushed me, you know, from that reflection to actually action and looking at my environment uh, in the therapeutic setting to figure out what, what can I do? you know, to create that inclusivity for my patients. I want to give mm -hmm. a specific example about, you know, maybe a mistake that I made, you know, in therapy, Please. actually recently. Um, so there was actually a patient who came in and um, this individual indicated that he came in due to relationship issues, okay? And when I asked him about his spouse, I noticed that I used the term wife, okay, wow. at first. And he corrected me and said, well, actually, Dr. Warner, you know, um, it's not my wife, it's actually my husband. And right there, I realized that, you know, wow, I made a mistake and I apologized. And I had that discussion with him. And he was like, you know, I get that all the time because I don't, you know, identify, I don't look on the outside like a traditional, quote unquote, you know, gay male. You know, mm -hmm. I don't, um, you know, abide by those like traditional or stereotypical mannerisms, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And he said, I get that all the time. People always assume that I'm married to a woman mm -hmm. uh, and I have to always correct people. And sometimes that's taxing on me and, and it's kind of mm -hmm. uh, impactful when I have to repeatedly correct others, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we were able to engage in that discussion and that dialogue. And at the end of the session, he indicated that he was so appreciative that I was open to learning, that I was open to raising my hand and say, hey, I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And that actually made us closer. That actually improved our therapeutic alliance and mm -hmm. promoted optimal treatment outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to give a specific example that I think sometimes we do that a lot. We may, uh, we assume someone's sexual orientation or maybe their gender pronouns, right, um, et cetera. And sometimes just asking our patients what they prefer to go by yeah. could be the first step, you know, with enhancing mm -hmm. that therapeutic alliance so we can best meet their needs. Right, right. I think that that's an important illustration you've given us too.
oftentimes when I'm in the therapeutic context, I'm really fearful of having a rupture. I mean it, Ryan. Like I, I'm, I'm really, oh God, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? Uh, I'm fearful of the rupture ending things, hmm. like really becoming the end of our work. Someone doesn't want to come back. Like, or, or I, I, I do something so awful that it really disrupts the clinical process or the effectiveness of the work that we do. And I really appreciate your example because I think that there's a humanity piece to it, but there's also a really incredible skill that you're sharing there, that, that there are opportunities for repair as well. And an opportunity seemingly for conversations, at least with some folks to be able to to talk about the impact of comments like that on their lives in a new way. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. It is, it's obviously easier said than done, right? However, sure. if we're able to be vulnerable, you know, similar mm -hmm. to our patients coming in and being vulnerable with us, and if we're able to safely, uh, you know, and appropriately disclose as well, you know, like I was able in that situation to say, you know, I noticed that in the past, I've done that a lot. I've assumed that individuals will be married, you know, to um, the opposite gender. And I was able to convey that to my patient. And um, that appropriate self-disclosure um, was able to actually enhance, you know, our relationship, right? Um, so it obviously depends on the situation. It depends on the specific circumstance. But research shows that when we're more culturally aware and when we are able to engage in that dialogue about culture, about diversity within the therapeutic setting, then it actually improves therapeutic outcomes. And individuals of different backgrounds may feel more comfortable coming to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, throughout our conversation today, and honestly, before our conversation today, this question's been bouncing around in my head, you know? How do I get better at this? How do we get better at this as health service psychologists? You know, and I'm really curious about this question too, because in some ways, I've been thinking about how unconscious biases are unconscious. You know, we don't see them until we see them or, you know, and, and in many ways I'm wondering how can we recognize something that we are unaware of? Great question. So the first thing that comes to mind is number one, just do an environmental scan of your mm -hmm. current connections. Okay. So if you have a social media, look in your Twitter, look in your Instagram, look in your Facebook, who are the people that you're connected with? Mm -hmm. Are they people of the same background as yourself? Are they all health service psychologists? <laughs> are they all individuals with higher educational degrees? Are, the, are they all individuals who identify with your racial ethnic background? If so, then maybe it's time to branch out. Maybe it's time to connect with individuals of different backgrounds, right? Because as human beings, we obviously gravitate towards people who are in our in-group right, who share very similar backgrounds as, as ourselves, okay? And however, that can at times impact our ability to learn from the cultures of others, okay? And in turn, contribute to additional bias that we may have. So if we're simply just able to connect with other people, whether that be individuals from different careers or different uh, childhood upbringings, uh, who hold different political views and ideologies than ourselves, you know, then that can improve our ability to, to be more aware of, of different cultural backgrounds. Okay, so that's, that's number one. Number two, we have to constantly engage in continual 
education. So I'm not talking about going to one Black History Month uh, event a year, okay, right, right. Or, or going to one LGBTQ uh, rally, okay, or going to one training about diversity. I'm talking about engaging in ongoing dialogue, ongoing education, ongoing training, okay? So that could be watching a TED talk or watching a movie that maybe necessarily you would have, wouldn't have watched in the past, okay? Or, you know, being able to reach out, you know, uh, to others outside of your in-group, you know, engage in dialogue with them uh, about their cultural background or maybe about a holiday that, holiday that they celebrate that you may not be as familiar with. You know, being inquisitive and, and trying to learn from the experience of others can also be helpful as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and lastly, I have a specific systemic approach that we can implement within the therapeutic setting to improve our ability to feel more comfortable engaging in that dialogue with our patients. So I'm not sure if you would like to share, share it. Yeah, I would love to hear it. Okay, cool. Yeah. So this framework was actually created by uh, Dr. Dana Crawford. Um, she's a psychologist and this framework, I talked more about, I spoke more about in the National Registrar webinar that I recently did. Um, however, I just wanted to briefly go over the framework. So it's called Let Up, okay? And it's a framework ultimately that helps us provide more culturally effective care um, when working with individuals of different backgrounds. So I'll give you an example. Say for instance, maybe uh, your patient, maybe you experience a microaggression yourself as a therapist. Okay, maybe your patient or client says something that didn't really sit right with you about a particular group that you have a strong, deep emotional connection with. Okay, so the first thing that we do as humans is we are defensive at first. Okay, so we may experience a visceral reaction, right? Um, and ultimately, we may, you know, disagree with that person. Um, right. And sometimes in a therapeutic setting, we may try to hide that. But ultimately, this let up model is a way that we can engage in productive, effective dialogue, you know, with maybe a coworker or a patient or a client um, that can improve, you know, the relationships with others uh, and the probability that we can, you know, have some type of productive outcome. So let up first stands for listen. Okay, so when we experience that visceral reaction at first about a statement um, or maybe environmental microaggression that we witness or observe, we need to first listen. We need to first listen to not only the other person, if it's verbal, for instance, but also internal, okay? We need to listen to our internal processing. So what emotions are coming up? You know, how is your body responding, you know, to that statement or that microaggression that you experience or observe? What are some of the things, Ryan, sorry to interrupt, what are some of the things I might pay attention to in my body? You know, sometimes like, you know, are there physical sensations? Are there emotional things that, that might be a cue to, that say, yeah, yeah, that's something that's come up for you there? So I know for me, when I experience microaggressions in a therapeutic setting and outside of the therapeutic setting, the first thing that comes up to me is my, is my thoughts. You know, so I think uh-huh. that that person is trying to offend me, you know, those negative uh-huh. cognitions, right? That person is trying to offend me or that person is totally ignorant and they have no clue what they're talking about. Right. Uh-huh. And then my heart may just start to beat fast. I may become kind of anxious, right? Because it's making yeah. me uncomfortable. So I need yeah. to first listen to my mm-hmm. thoughts. I need to be more aware of my thoughts, you know, my emotions, you know, and the behaviors that I'm engaging in. Okay. Does that answer your question? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then the next step I need to take is the E, which is, which is empathize. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we need 
to be able to empathize with that other person if we're engaging in just say one-on-one -on -one dialogue. Because oftentimes when we become offended, um, we're, we're the first step is to not to think about, okay, what may be going through that person's mind, okay? Or maybe that person may not have a, be having the best day today. Or maybe that person just not culturally aware, okay? Sometimes those thoughts don't come to mind, right? So we need to first try to sit in that person's shoes and empathize with that individual, okay? The next thing we need to do is tell our story. So after I'm able to listen, listen internally and externally, I empathize, you know, try to sit in that person's shoes, and then I need to tell my story, okay? And this is where appropriate self-disclosure is important. So in that example, if you think back to the example that I provided, when I made a mistake, you know, and I assumed that my male client was married to a, a female or a woman, right? I was able to tell my story and I, was, and I said that I often notice that I make mistakes like that, you know, um, and I was able to share my personal experiences, okay? In an appropriate way. After I tell my story, I need to then engage in understanding, okay? So understanding ultimately helps us be able to be more aware uh, about how that microaggression that was committed, um, how that may impact others, okay? So if we're able to try to understand, you know, we need to be educated uh, about the impact of microaggressions and we need to be open to learning from that person's experience. Lastly, we need to psychoeducate, okay? Mm -hmm. So say for instance, you know, I, I heard a microaggression. Uh, I was able to listen, empathize, tell my story, engage in the appropriate self-disclosure, try to understand where that person is coming from. And then lastly, provide that psychoeducation, right? Um, so for instance, with that, I, I wanna ask you actually, Sam, can you think of an example maybe in your life in which maybe you provided some psychoeducation after you experienced um, or observed a microaggression. Can you think of an example? You know, there, there are a few that, that come to mind, but you know, one of the ones that impacted me when I was in graduate school, and so I can kind of own this as my own, is um, an individual in a class, um, we were we were talking a little bit about all of our identities. It was a multiculturalism class and each reflecting on identities that we hold. And um, I have a, a Jewish ethnic background and the person asked a question, no malicious intent behind it, but asked the question, why do Jews always have so much money or like why do Jews always control so much of the money and I recognized that um in that moment it really like activated me I I I'll, I'll be frank with you Ryan I don't know that I had the the right response in that moment around psychoeducation but I think as I um was in that moment and as I think back to it, it, it was an opportunity missed in some ways, you know, an opportunity missed to, to provide a little bit of psychoeducation of that, you know, there are a number of stereotypes that are portrayed in the media and historically that, you know, that have to do with that and, and that it may be hurtful for some groups um, to hear such a, a comment like that. Um, and it might impact their ability to connect. 
So that response right there is a perfect example of educating, engaging mm -hmm. in that last step, that psychoeducation, mm -hmm. right? Talking about that that remark that was made is is often a stereotype that may be portrayed in the media, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And right there, when you're able to convey that, that may open that other person's eyes to realize, mm -hmm. oh, I didn't realize that's a stereotype. That may not be true of all individuals, okay? Mm -hmm. However, you made another point in which mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to do, right? Totally. It's hard to have that response to be able to engage in psychoeducation, you know, especially when, especially when you may feel offended or you may shut down, right? And that's why I think the let up model is so powerful because before we respond, we have to first listen, we have to first try to sit in that person's shoes. We have to then tell our story, right? So if you were able to gauge in that self-disclosure, that could have been helpful as well in that moment. Then understand that that person may not realize that they committed that microaggression. They may right. not realize what they, what they said can be hurtful for some people. And that's why that psychoeducational psych, psycho piece at the end you know, um, could be helpful with providing that additional awareness. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a great example. And I think that sums up, you know, how powerful, you know, and how helpful the let up model can be, you know, not just in a therapeutic setting, but also maybe in the workplace as well. Ryan, even as you asked me to kind of go through it and, and kind of roll through that experience that I had in the past, even for me, it's getting me questioning like, well, yeah, how could I do this better in the future? And like, what does this look like for others too? When I hear things happening that don't necessarily involve me and don't necessarily have to do with my identities personally, but what is my role and how do I, how do I, how do I play a role? What, what can I do in those moments? And it, it's getting me kind of questioning like, oh, wow, I feel like I can use this in those moments too a little bit more to kind of fuel how I then respond. Mm -hmm. And I often like to convey a quote mm -hmm. and it goes like this, silence is compliance and only en enhances and encourages injustice in the world. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes we feel that if we're silent and don't say anything, then it will go away, okay? Mm -hmm. Especially when covert, you know, subtle remarks happen. Okay, but say for instance, if you're out in society and you see someone being harassed, you know, or physically abused, then sometimes we may feel that we need to stand up. We need to say something because it's overt, it's, it's out there, right? Everybody sees it. However, we also need to do the same when covert remarks and covert environmental microaggressions may occur as well, okay? Because even though it may not be so obvious, Research shows that it still has significant impacts. Impacts on individuals' well-being, you know, impacts on their self-esteem, leads to less um, productive uh, therapeutic outcomes, mm -hmm. right, et cetera, right? So it still mm -hmm. does have an impact, but just in a different way. Yeah. Um, so I just, I just want to leave you with that as well, that yes, it's hard. Yes, there's a lot of barriers <laughs> to speaking up. Um, we can have an entirely uh, uh, another discussion uh, about that. Uh, but if we're able to just first try to learn from that experience, if we're able to engage in continuous education, reach out to other individuals who may not be like us and hold different ideologies and beliefs than ourselves, then that's going to improve our cultural awareness so we can best serve our patients. Thank you so much, Ryan. You know, as I, as I think about this conversation today, it has flown by. And, and I so appreciate you 
disclosing with us and sharing a little bit about your experience and also pushing me a little bit too today to, to get better at this because I really want to. And I think we all have to be asking that question of like, how do I get better at this? How do I do this better for our clients, for our colleagues, for those that are coming through their, our training programs as well? Thank you for taking the time to share your expertise today. But before we go, I just want to ask you one last question. Where can listeners go for more resources or even find out more about your consulting? Yeah, so you can first visit my website at www.rcwarnerconsulting.com. Uh, you can also uh, Google my information, Dr. Ryan C. Warner, and there should be uh, blog posts and different podcasts uh, that you can look into. You can also email me at rcwarnerconsulting@gmail.com at gmail.com as well if any questions, comments, or feedback come up. Great, great. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. If you enjoyed this content, be sure to check out Dr. Ryan C. Warner's recent clinical webinar on unmasking microaggressions in a clinical setting, which is available on the National Register's website. And for more content on this topic, make sure to listen to a previous clinical consult episode titled Multicultural Competence and Telepsychology with guest Dr. William Ming Lu. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education.